Ledbetter, would you rather be forced to sing along to every song you heard or dance to every song you heard? Ooh, that's a great question. I am very much a car singer, so I think singing would be easy enough for me. Uh, I also like making parody songs, so you can hear me sing on my podcast every now and then. But uh, I like—I I think I'd go singing personally. Not that I'm objective to dancing. I am a master of any white person dance at a wedding. I can hit the wobble. I can hit the cha-cha slide. I'm very good there. I have no issues with dancing, but I personally would be a singing person. We got a wedding coming up in August for MMA Dre. So, you know, I got to remember the Cupid shuffle. I think I got to go singing though. I, I'm not much of a dancer. Have no rhythm. That's just part of my DNA does not exist. Singing, eh, I could do karaoke from time to time. I have no objection. And if it's the right type of banger, you know, the perfect song, give me a little Frank Sinatra my way or something like that. I, I could get into it. I can vibe. Just give me, you know, the right song <laughs> and I, I'm ready to cut loose on that. I'm definitely a singing person. Slump Busters. Would you rather sing or dance in public to every song you heard? Drop below in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. And hell, if you're listening to this on iTunes, leave a five-star review letting us know your answer. Anyway, guys, it's time to enjoy the podcast. It's time for your random sports fact of the week. Wow, did you know that? Now live on the Slumbuster Podcast, random sports fact of the week. This past Friday, with a 104-102 win over the Utah Jazz, Greg Popovich became the winningest coach in NBA history. Popovich passed Don Nelson with career win number 1,336. Pop actually accomplished the feat in almost 400 fewer games than Nelson. Pop is a five-time NBA champion, three-time coach of the year, and coached a gold medal winning squad in 2021. My fun fact about Pop, though, is not the win's record itself, but his origin story. How did Popovich become head coach of the San Antonio Spurs, you ask? Simply put, he hired himself. Pop was the team's general manager in 1996, and after a 3-15 start to the season, fired Bob Hill and took his job. His team would only win 17 more games that season and would be granted the NBA's top pick. That draft pick would become Tim Duncan. The Slump Buster Podcast. The Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. All righty, Kyle, as we sit here on Thursday, March 17th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, Deshaun Watson is still a Houston Texan, but we do know that he will not be a Cleveland Brown in the 2022 season. It's seeming like the New Orleans Saints and the Atlanta Falcons are the final two teams in Deshaun Watson sweepstakes, but the Saints are the only team that's met with him twice. If you had to put your money on it, where do you think he ends up? Uh... I don't know because I don't know Deshaun Watson at this point. And this is the shitty situation about all of this is that the person who's accused of 23 cases of sexual misconduct gets all the power in this situation, not only to make that go away, he'll settle out of court at some point soon, but at the same time, he gets to dictate exactly where he wants to go. The part that's funny about an incredibly shitty situation is that all of the teams trying to get him are just all shitty NFC South teams. Like all the NFC South teams are like, we we all want to get the sexual predator and make him the face of our franchise. And we will pay our entire future to make that happen. And one of the things that's interesting about that side is Deshaun Watson gets to choose which one. And ultimately, this is where the moral conflict comes in for football teams, which is if we don't do it, he will go to our division rival, which I don't know if that is the reason why the Falcons got in late to the game and wanted to put the negative publicity of we want to get in on the Deshaun Watson 
preseason game. Maybe it was because they saw the Saints and Panthers getting into it, but this is the really difficult moral and ethical conundrum that all of these teams are going through right now as they get ready to, you know, in the Saints case, it looks like get ready to make Deshaun Watson the face of their corporation. And that is going to take all kinds of negative PR hits for the franchise. Well, they might take a little bit of a PR hit, but there is a lot of people that are willing to look at Deshaun Watson's current situation and he's not a criminal. That is an important state. He's not a criminal, according to a grand jury that absolved him of or couldn't find enough evidence of as of about a week ago now. I think last Friday, he officially got that ruling. Now he's just settling these civil cases and he's not even settling these. He's still fighting these. So it does at least put a modicum of doubt. So if your franchise is looking into picking him up, you have to somewhat look past it because right now it's not a settled science that some of this has actually happened according to the evidence that we have. Now you talk about why the Falcons would want to get into it? Well, it's easy. You have an aging Matt Ryan. You don't know what your future at quarterback looks like. Maybe you could dive into this year's draft, but putting the future of your franchise in the hands of Matt Corral or the tiny hands of Kenny Pickett is not something that a lot of organizations are looking to really get into. You're hoping to find someone that's as good as Deshaun Watson. But you can also just get Deshaun Watson out of the situations to end up in. I think New Orleans is probably the best. Just when I think about Alvin Kamara, I think about that defense. I think about Michael Thomas coming back. Reportedly, that offensive line might take a hit as Cesar Ruiz could be a person that goes back in a potential deal with Houston. But I think that that's probably the most ideal landing spot. And you just look at the complexion of the South. Obviously, we have Tom Brady back for another year, but Tom Brady's probably on his last year or his second to last year or his third last year he's not going to be there forever I mean he said 45 we just kind of have to take him at his word that 45 seems like it's going to be the goal if he plays till 50 I guess you know that changes the math completely in that division but assuming he retires after next year you have Deshaun Watson you only have a top five quarterback I mean no we haven't talked about Deshaun Watson as a quarterback in a long time but when he is on the field he's pretty damn good and I think if you're the Saints you just kind of have to take that risk because Drew Brees isn't coming back through that door. At least prime Drew Brees isn't coming back through that door. You're looking at starting Jameis Winston next year. And as good as Jameis Winston started to look in terms of turning around his career, not throwing 30 picks a game, he still looked like he was fighting that offense. You know, they were starting to fight the better instincts of Jameis Winston. So I I don't think they could go another year of doing that. Uh, Your other options are like Marcus Mariota. And I love Jimmy. You know, I love Jimmy. If I have Deshaun Watson or Jimmy G, I'm going with Deshaun Watson. It's just as simple as that just in terms of the quarterback math because you look at the last two years you look at the last two years of Super Bowl winners Bucks go out there they sign Tom Brady and they win a Super Bowl the Los Angeles Rams go out there trade for Matthew Stafford they win a Super Bowl this year the big fish seemingly is Deshaun Watson uh, 1A 1B between him and Russell Wilson as far as who could be that big acquired quarterback that could turn around the complexion of franchise. You talk about the Saints as if they were a team that could have made some noise in last year's playoffs. So with that said, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Year. I I didn't say that yeah, they were you, that team. I said the said Saints that could have done what the 49ers as much did. as the 49ers did, which is a bold claim considering they had Taysom Hill at quarterback. And I know, again, you don't think much of Jimmy Garoppolo, but he runs circles around Taysom Hill. That Just was not that, to necessarily praise the Saints. That was more an indictment of the NFC that year because if the Saints had gotten the seven seed, they would have played the Bucks in the first round. We know they beat the Bucks four times in the last two years in the regular season. Then in the second round, they would have got the Lambeau game that the Niners got, which was, you know, fluky, blocked field goal, blocked punt. Did the 49ers deserve to win? 
you know, it's it's uh, it's more so just a, a, an indictment of the Man, NFC last year. Dome team, they don't got the stones to go to Lambeau. I'm going to say it. They don't add the stones. But back to the main point, Deshaun Watson, insert him into where Taysom Hill was last year at the end of the season. And that does legitimately make the Saints a Super Bowl contender. Now, the only thing that changes that situation around is it's not Sean Payton calling plays anymore. It's Dennis Allen. I don't know how good Dennis Allen is going to be as the Saints coach. This is obviously a second tenure as an NFL head coach, but he is a good defensive mind. I, I would assume that the offensive coordinator that took over is someone in Sean Payton's coaching tree. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle. Yes, Dennis Allen does technically fall under Sean Payton's coaching no, 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 tree. But the I do person that took over offensively. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know who took over offensively for the New Orleans Saints. I would have um, to assume they kept it in I, I know it was, I assume so, because it wasn't like it was a massive coaching switch there. Uh, it is Pete Carmichael Jr., who I believe uh, is still the, uh, I think he was the offensive coordinator. Yeah, he's been the offensive coordinator for the past 13 years. So he's offensive still the foundational piece. Quotes, yeah, just quote, not play caller. Uh, yeah, yeah he'll get to be a play caller for the first time. That's kind of like, Mike McDaniels to Kyle Shanahan. It's like you still know Kyle's calling the plays, but he's the offensive coordinator. Sure. That um, hey, that hasn't stopped every single team in the NFL from hiring a Sean McVay assistant. You don't have to be able to call plays in order to get hired as an NFL head coach. In fairness, it's working. <laughs> Other than the Chargers last year, for the most part, it's been working. Uh, we'll see if Brandon Staley could turn things around. I think that's the best place to land. We talked about all the situations he could have landed. Miami. Sure, would have been fine, maybe a lifestyle change. But, you know, the Falcons, again, they would love to have a young quarterback, a controllable quarterback, a superstar quarterback. Not to mention the story that Deshaun Watson grew up in the Atlanta area and was a Falcons ball boy at age 14. We can't yeah. feel good about it, though, because they're trading for a sexual predator. And so now that changes the entire math of the feel-good stories. We don't want to feel good about that situation because we know how terrible the Falcons are looking as a franchise for doing it. I'm just going to go off what I know right now. Again, there wasn't enough evidence to charge him on any of things. I mean, I'm not saying he's completely right in all those situations, but you know, it's gone a sexual predator, I think might be a little bit of strong verbiage. I don't think anyone's going to look completely necessarily down on them if they make this move, because right now we're in the process of talking about this as a football decision. At least everyone I've heard talk about it, even in the mainstream media has talked about this as football decision. Not too many people are focusing on that aspect of it. And when I look at the Falcons and these Saints, I look at two franchises that need to make something happen at that position. And I think this is the right move for them. I mean, eventually, you know, will Deshaun Watson atone for his mistakes? As a society, we always talk about giving people second chances. Well, you know what? This could be Deshaun Watson's second chance. Hopefully he betters himself and learns from whatever mistakes he did make. Or is he just going to have to carry around that sexual predator tag for the rest of his life? I don't know. I think atonement's going to help there and any kind of accountability. Like he's going to presumably get suspended only because the NFL can't get away with not suspending him any games. And it's probably going to be a lesser suspension than Calvin Ridley, which is a little bit weird, but I'm not going to pretend the NFL is like doing the morals of Again, punishment. Again, we talked about a that. statement suspension with Calvin Ridley. That one's yeah. just to make a larger point for future occurrences. That one's to set precedent. They already have a precedent for stuff like this. And even though I know we've talked about it, he's still getting paid. He still got paid last year. Still had to sit out a year of his prime career. So I'm sure that that has to get factored into whatever eventual suspension he does receive. 
That is true. And also, I don't know exactly what the correct line is here because this is an unprecedented situation. What we are watching right now is what I've called the sports story of a generation. Like this is an incredibly unprecedented situation where the second he gets traded, whether he should be traded or not in this situation is another moral question that everyone answers individually. The moment he gets traded, it will be the biggest trade in the history of the NFL. And he is facing unprecedented accusations against against him. We've had similar types of situations in the past with Kobe Bryant surviving a rape trial and becoming a national figurehead and universally beloved in death or Ben Roethlisberger getting sports washed after he served his suspension. This one is one where there is no precedent and it comes in the post Me Too movement where it's going to be more difficult for him to atone for this situation. He will eventually. Showing contrition is one way that will buy you a lot and serving some measure of accountability. And I know he did miss all of last year getting paid for it. It makes the blow soften a little bit. I think there needs to be some larger measure of accountability. I just, we talked about this before. I don't know exactly where the bar gets drawn because like everyone has different moral and ethical lines when it comes to this situation. And these are things that like legal systems aren't equipped to handle. So getting a whole bunch of sports people and Roger Goodell together and saying what is an appropriate suspension for someone who sexually harassed and in intimidated 23 at a minimum women, because we also know from reporting that there are more people who didn't press charges against him who have similar types of stories. But he's still Uh, fighting those settlements too. There's 23 accusations, but he could get in the courtroom and there'd not be enough evidence to even back up these civil claims. Yes, I don't think it's possible that all 23 will be exonerated, but some of them may be. And ultimately, he will he's going to choose to settle in the end because it benefits him to pay the the fine essentially, which is pay the settlement and make it go away. He His just couldn't make criminal charges go very away. set on not settling. They're going That's what it, it would appear. And according to Mike Florio in December when the Dolphins were trying to trade for him, they needed a settlement and they could get 18 settlements. They just couldn't get 22 total settlements. If they could have gotten 22, they would have settled. And I think that's part of the narrative of why he's fighting the situation a little bit is that they can't get settlements without going through the depositions in all of the cases. They can get some of them, but they can't settle all of them, which I think is part of why it's being framed in such a way that he's fighting back against it. I think that's a great way of putting it together by Rusty Harding, because I thought they would have settled a year ago, but that's just me not understanding the legal aspects of the situation me being a part-time legal expert trying to learn about the legal system through this case. I didn't realize that they, they needed everyone to settle and the more victims there are, the, the less easy it is to be able to get everyone together and settle because everyone has their own traumatic situation that maybe they want to have their day in court for. Yeah, but do you just treat every accusation as just a guilty verdict if you're an NFL team? I mean, again, we do in our legal system have innocent till proven guilty. So given the fact that he wasn't proven guilty in the court of law, like what came down last Friday, how can an NFL team then just go outside the system and say, no, you're guilty? Because 23, you have to suspend a lot of disbelief to believe that nothing happened when it comes to 23. But also, this is what the NFL wanted. The NFL wants you to believe that they are a moral arbiter in these types of situations. It's why Deshaun Watson is going to be suspended possibly for the entire season next year, is that the NFL wants you to believe that they are moral arbiters in this situation. And because it's 
it's such an unprecedented situation, the NFL does have near total authority to hand out whatever suspension that they want to Deshaun Watson in this situation. Now they'll find a compromise of what benefits them and what they can get the PR response for it. But ultimately, the NFL doesn't want people talking about the Deshaun Watson situation. They're going to do the bare minimum that they have to do, which includes, by the way, not putting Deshaun Watson on the exempt list last year and having the Texans kind of bite the bullet on that situation and just say, don't play him, put him on the bench. You know, we don't need this coming back into the news stream. Just sit him for the season and then we'll resolve the situation after his criminal case has been filed. So the NFL wants to be in the game of crime and punishment and standing on moral grounds, even if it's really difficult to do so because they're a corporation. And so this is the interesting place that they find themselves in, which is how do we go about this situation when we can't do nothing? And also it behooves us to not put him on the sideline for years upon years. So how do they find a compromise that feels like some measure of accountability? Because in this situation, the legal system isn't equipped to provide accountability for all of the women in this situation. And Deshaun Watson is still earning an exorbitant amount of money and he can make it go away because he has an incredible amount of money and power. And he also gets to pick the team that he plays for next, which is again, why I think this is the sports story of a generation. He does have the power to pick the team he wants next, but I think this is also the Houston Texans way of just making the situation go away. Giving him the power, I don't think is a huge compromise for them to make, given that it also benefits their franchise just to get the situation over with. So I, I should I don't clarify think there too. He, he has the, I should clarify. He has the power because he has the no trade clause. The only thing that Houston could push back on is to give him the middle finger and say, no, you are going to play for our team, but that doesn't look good for the Houston Texans if they're aggressively trying to get him back to play. They can also make it a point to just trade him to a place anyway, too, and just see like if he would be willing to take the PR hit of turning down a no trade clause. Talk about that could be just petty, but that is a thing that can happen. He but- did that back in October, by the way. He the the Panthers were willing to trade for him with uh, without finding out what was going to happen in the criminal case, and he declined the no trade clause. He used the no trade clause on the Panthers, which is a big L for Carolina because he got all the negative PR without any of the actually getting Deshaun Watson last year. Yeah, Carolina is just in a rough situation at this point. You go and trade for all these assets to pick up Sam Darnold. You miss out on Deshaun Watson. You miss out on every other quarterback, every other premium quarterback that you're trying to go to. Meanwhile, David Teffer has made it his one goal to pursue a franchise quarterback, and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. I just look at the situation like, yes, we can look at Deshaun Watson and understand that he made a mistake. My, my question is like, when do we allow him to reintegrate into society? Because we, we got to establish this at a certain point too, when we allow people to come back to society. The whole point of even like our prison system is the idea of reform. Do we allow people to even reform or do we just look at them and allow them to carry that scarlet letter for the rest of their life? I think systems are imperfect, right? So I think at this point, we're asking people to make impossible moral decisions that in some way, shape or form, they're going to be hypocritical. I talked about on my podcast, like I feel really like morally compromised talking about where he's going to go. And also this is only a story because Deshaun Watson is a famous quarterback that can change the entire landscape of NFL teams. And so it's incredibly difficult to navigate. I think it's more of a story too, because our idea of Deshaun Watson prior to this was that he was just a clean, perfect guy with no Dude. skeletons in the closet. Everyone just looked at him as 
like another Russell Wilson type. And, you know, we found out that everyone has their dirty laundry. That, that's the one thing where I'm like, as a person too, again, he made a mistake. You know, he was given power, he was given money, and he thought he could get away with a little bit more stuff than he probably could have gotten away with when he was a younger adult. As a person that thinks too, that people could get better, people could learn from incidents, people can change. I will allow him to have the second opportunity and will try my best to allow him to do that without the added judgment moving forward in life. He's already going to get memed to death by the internet until he's gone. I mean, look, 20 years later, Ben Roethlisberger is still having memes about his retirement. You know, that's going to carry with him the rest of his life. I'm just not piling on. Yes. And I think that the accountability in this situation is the thing that's going to matter more than anything else. And him showing contrition. Like towards the end, Ben Roethlisberger, I don't know if he ever really like atoned for it. He obviously apologized in his statement after the suspension, but he became someone who kind of found Christ a little bit and we yeah. kind of forgot about and that stuff. I bring up that was yeah. his atonement. Everyone atones in different ways. Maybe that was his atonement. He talks about gaining off pornography and easy to make fun of, but you know, hey, that's probably a big step for a guy in his life. You know, if he had any sexual perversion, you know, gain off pornography, gain off booze, that's probably a huge <laughs> step for someone in that situation. Yeah. And I think that a measure of accountability is going to help here because if Deshaun Watson was not powerful and if Deshaun Watson was not, did not have the ability to change billion dollar economies overnight, he would not be playing in the NFL anymore. And it's all a matter of how much value you can provide to a team. And that's why the situation is incredibly complex and unique. I brought up Kobe Bryant a little bit earlier, which is if the public had not pressured the woman who was uh, bringing charges against Kobe Bryant for rape, they would have had a conviction. Like they had overwhelming evidence against Kobe Bryant in 2004 to convict him, including a statement immediately after from Kobe Bryant, essentially admitting to the situation. And Kobe Bryant got away with that, it felt like, because the public pressured her into dropping the lawsuit at the very end because it looked like Kobe Bryant was going to go to jail. And then 10 years later, 12 years later, he's universally beloved figure at the end. So time will evolve the situation. I just don't think that putting Deshaun Watson back on the pedestal is necessarily the greatest idea unless he shows contrition and atonement and is willing to at least serve his punishment and then work to be a better person publicly, which is difficult because he's a really, really rich person. He doesn't have to show us anything. He can hide in the shadows forever. I don't think he's ever going to be on that pedestal. What sponsorship is Deshaun Watson ever going to get at this point with that hanging over his head. I, I don't think he's ever going to get that level of love or money ever again. He's going to get rewarded from being a football player. And we'll be happy to talk about Deshaun Watson, the football player in the second part of his life, but he's never going to be the face of Papa John's or selling a new watch or mm -hmm. guy driving the car with Matthew McConaughey. That's not going to be parts of his life moving forward. <laughs> and I, I know it seems like pennies, the fact that, oh, you don't get to make 67 million off of like a state farm ads, but that is a punishment in itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't seem like a punishment to us on our level, you know, being in the middle class. But again, just think about the ridicule that he's going to receive for however long his career goes. And even after that, again, it's like having a scarlet letter on his chest. This is going to fall 
follow him. You know, again, he's just going to be part of society. We, we talked about Michael Vick as a player, even when he came back from jail, and he, we were happy to do that. Ray yes, Lewis and is a player this, with yeah. potential murder charges. There's been other situations like this, not exactly one-to-one comparisons, but still things where we had to accept that someone might have done something wrong in their past, but how do we move forward with them as the person? I mean, this is their occupation. Did we expect Deshaun Watson after all these accusations, especially to even after the grand jury verdict last week, go from, okay, I was the star quarterback of the Houston Texans to tomorrow I'm going to be selling insurance or I'm going to be working at your local grocery. Is that what we expected the punishment to be? No. And that's kind of the bar where everyone has to decide the accountability measure for themselves, which is, this is also the bar that people jump to all the time is like, do you want him to never be in the NFL again? I'm like, no, but I also don't want him to have zero accountability. It's not, he can play week one. It's not kick him out of the NFL forever. It's somewhere in the middle. I'm not sure exactly where it is in the middle. And I think everyone has their own answer there. The other other part to it is there are also the victims in this case who have to live with this in many cases for the rest of their lives and go through the national public shaming of coming forward against a rich and powerful person and having a good portion of the world not believe them because they have to go through this entire process in front of all of us inclined to believe the famous person because that's just the way that it works in this situation with society setting itself up. I'm not inclined to believe the the famous person. I'm inclined to believe that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. The, the women have to go through that same process and they don't have the millions of dollars of resources and opportunities to be able to make this situation more tenable in the future. And that's the part that makes me feel bad is like there are real victims here who are brave enough to come forward against an incredibly powerful person, not really expecting that they will get anything out of it other than a financial settlement and what that will represent. And ultimately, that may represent closure in the situation, but especially for someone like Ashley Solis, She was the first person who came forward in this situation. And I have a feeling that that name in some respects is going to be forever associated with this case. And that's an unfortunate situation for her because one of the lowest moments of your life becomes the thing that uh, strangers remember you for. And that's a really shitty situation to find yourself in. See, and you mentioned Ashley Solis. I wouldn't even remember that name. So is she really going to have to live with that? She's not going to have to live with it in my mind. She's only going to have to live with it to people that like really analyze the trial very early on. And at the end, it's just going to be a footnote to history. Possibly that's the case for her, but she always has to live with the shaming that everyone gave her over the past year. Plus with time, people will forget about it the same way they'll forget about what Deshaun Watson did. And maybe he atones and serves a suspension and people will be willing to reintegrate back into society. And if he doesn't do that, then I think people are going to be less inclined to forgive him. And I think with time, the pain maybe goes away. I'm not a victim in this situation. How does he atone to Kyle Ledbetter? I mean, the easiest way would be for him to go up on a statement and say, I apologize to each of the individual victims and list the individual victims by name. I was an abuser in this situation. I feel that I committed wrongdoing here. I apologize for what I'm done. I'm taking steps to be better, possibly going to see a therapist, doing something like that. Donating money is a good you know, way that people kind of wash this stuff away. But that was something that came to mind is like actually working to better yourself and then working to improve a situation for someone else. If he can do all of that, then I would say, oh, this person genuinely feels bad about what happened here and isn't feeling sad that he doesn't get to play football. But if don't he, those women always just look at him like he's a piece of shit regardless? 
I think it depends. I think everyone processes uh, trauma and processes heartache differently. And I'm not going to say that any one way is more correct than the other for the women to process that situation. Yes, he is a victim in that situation. And there are lots of cases where you find through working on yourself, you find forgiveness in your heart and maybe you don't. Like those are all different ways of coping with an impossible situation none of them asked for. Looking in his mind, what if he doesn't believe he's abusive? What if he doesn't believe he is in a violent situation? What if he actually does believe that these were consensual situations that four years, three years later, he just got ramrodded on and found out, oh, maybe I was in the wrong in this situation or not even I was in the wrong, you know, like, oh, I didn't know she read it that way. Then Deshaun Watson is a jerk. And that's the best I can say for that situation. But you shouldn't go, go to jail for being a jerk. Well, he's not going to go to jail. He's he not going to get... lose his freedoms over the situation, but he does need some measure of accountability for his actions because what he did is very much abuse. And it doesn't matter whether Deshaun Watson thought it was or wasn't in that situation. Deshaun Watson very much crossed a moral and ethical line that I'm sure at the time, either he didn't know was a moral and ethical line or he just didn't care because when you're doing this to dozens and dozens of people, it's a pattern, it's a habit and using essentially, I mean, this is a phrasing that I heard somewhere else. This is my phrasing. Essentially using massage therapists as Uber for sex is something that while may not be criminal is definitely morally and ethically reprehensible, especially when it's the large number of people that are bringing this against him. It suggests that this was a pretty consistent pattern across years for Deshaun Watson. And if he doesn't see that situation as he if he views himself as the victim in this situation then Deshaun Watson is very much a jerk and you know maybe he'll get to play again and maybe he'll get all these opportunities to make 200 million dollars playing down in Louisiana but it definitely doesn't make Deshaun Watson a good person if he feels that he is being the he's being victimized in this situation these guys are on fire let's hear more second quarter starts now Expectations are always high out of Dallas. Last year, the Cowboys won 12 games and coasted to the NFC East title. That is before getting upended by my San Francisco 49ers. Year three of the Mike McCarthy era in Dallas is upcoming. According to OverTheCap.com, Dallas has the seventh most cap space in the NFL. Here to talk the Dallas Cowboys early offseason moves, RJ Ochoa of SB Nation's Logging the Boys. RJ, how's your day going, man? It's going well. Thanks for having me. The uh, loss to San Francisco uh, really broke a lot of Cowboys fans. It's felt both like a day and like six years have passed uh, since then. So uh, it's uh, great to be reminded of that every single moment that I can be. Oh, you know, I I definitely have to make it known being here in Central Texas as a Niners fan. You know, it's constantly walking around with the palpable presence of Cowboys fans. So, you know, every now and then just got to slip in that heartbreak. Uh, Speaking of heartbreaking situations, though, yesterday... Uh, The Cowboys were finalizing a deal with Randy Gregory. Seemed like it was done. And then in the 11th hour, Randy Gregory becomes a Bronco. Uh, What broke down in those negotiations? And what's the contingency plan out there in Dallas? Like I mentioned, you guys have a lot of cap space heading into this one. Well, they have cap space now because they've created it. That, you know, the Cowboys started off uh, in the red, uh, like a handful of NFL teams, and they've, they've restructured deals of, you know, Dak Prescott's deal, Zach Martin's deal. They struck a new deal with Demarcus Lawrence to create some salary cap space, and it really seemed like um, all those things, trading away Amari Cooper, were done in the name of keeping certain players around, among them, obviously, players like Randy Gregory. 
And so there's a little bit of a he said, she said game happening, you know, between the Cowboys and, and Randy Gregory's representation. But it just, it kind of seems like there was some, at the very least, confusion um, in the 11th hour, as you mentioned. Uh, but that that the negotiations maybe uh, weren't exactly what, what either party would have liked throughout the entire process. And so it really just kind of was um, the final straw that broke the camel's back. Like you ever just have like a bad day and like the dumbest thing sets you off just because, you know, you're, you've kind of been ready to hit that boiling point. Not that this was a dumb thing, but but I think that it, it was that. It was that kind of just, you know, moment that everybody kind of needed to blow up. And unfortunately, everything dissolved. And there was an offer waiting for Randy, as you mentioned, from Denver. He took it. And so sometimes that just happens. But it, it was uh, a spectacular bit of chaos uh, for the Cowboys, as is usually the case. So with the Cowboys, the big news that made headlines was, of course, Amari Cooper. He was traded to Cleveland. They didn't get a lot of compensation for him, but Cleveland did take on pretty much all of his contract in the trade. So they kind of valued cap space and money over potential you know, draft compensation in that case. So uh, what do you make of the move? What does it mean for Dak? What does it mean for CeeDee Lamb? And what does it mean for the 2022 Dallas Cowboys? You say 2022, you know, it was very clear and obvious two years ago uh, that the Cowboys set up a decision from Mario Cooper this offseason in 2022. It was very obvious that his, his contract did have that escape hatch uh, this offseason to where the Cowboys would only have to eat $6 million of his $22 million overall salary. And that lined up, you know, you mentioned CD Lamb, but lined up with Michael Gallup's rookie contract expiring. Now, at the time of agreeing the terms with Amari Cooper two years ago, CD Lamb was in the NFL draft process. They did not know that they were going to land CD Lamb with the 17th overall pick. And I think that that really, really crystallized that idea of, okay, we're going to make a decision two years from now who to pair with CD in the long run. And, you know, a year ago, Michael Gallup was kind of regarded as this trade piece because he was entering the final year of his rookie contract. There were a lot of Cowboys fans, I know we wrote about it, you know, they talked about flipping, at the time, Michael Gallup for Stephon Gilmore. Obviously, this, again, predates Trayvon Diggs' kind of, you know, arrival last year. Uh, and then Digg, or Gilmore, excuse me, getting traded to Carolina. And so Michael Gallup had a phenomenal 2019 season with the Cowboys and Dak Prescott and was really off to a great start in 2020 before Dak Prescott got hurt. Michael Gallup obviously got hurt after the season opener, which really impacted his overall free agency candidacy this year. Then he tore the ACL in the penultimate game of the regular season. And so it's been this strange, like, are they actually going to go through with it sort of situation? But it does kind of seem like Amari had a bit of a falling out with the front office coaching staff, whoever you want to put, you know, on that label. But to your point, I mean, they really just wanted to get rid of his salary. I mean, and, and again, they, they set this up this way. Um, and so it was somewhat by design. Are they a better team without him? No. But the totality of how smart or stupid it is still does remain to be seen. And some of that involves luck. You know, are they able to use that salary cap space? on a now not Randy Gregory, but somebody else. Are they able to fortify their team in different senses? Does a Chris Olave or somebody fall to them with the 24th overall pick to where they still have another threat uh, on the outside opposite of Michael Gallup? Because C.D. Lamb, everybody wants to see him play primarily out of the slot, and that hasn't happened. But um, there are a lot of questions around it. it. It does make sense, and it was all put together in a plan. But whether or not C.D. is capable of taking over that that top role uh, remains to be seen. We have also yet to see Dak Prescott, not that he's incapable of it, but have yet to see him be this version of himself without Amari Cooper on the team. Um, so th there are some questions. There are some concerns, but um, I, I guess it's a little bit of an educated guess on the Cowboys' part. You mentioned it. Before that trade, before Amari was traded to Dallas, Dak was a Pretty average quarterback, about 90 less passing yards per game. His QBR, his passer rating, about 20 points below his average with Amari. 
Uh, is it an oversimplification to say Amari in, good Dak? Amari out, bad Dak? What do you think is going to be the true impact of trading out Amari for Michael Gallup essentially being the number one or number two? I do think it's it's a little bit of an oversimplification. You know, that 2018 season, which was really, you know, the worst part of Dak Prescott's career so far, the first half of it, it should be mentioned that earlier that offseason in 2018, the Cowboys cut Des Bryant and Jason Witten retired. So those were two really, the first Jason Witten retirement, to be clear. There was some some startling change, and they really thought that they could go at this thing. That the, the term that they used all throughout the offseason was wide receiver by committee. Uh, they signed Alan Hearns. They still had Cole Beasley. They had Deontay Thompson as one of their free agent signings. They still had Tavon Austin, who they had traded for the year before. Um, so it was this just kind of collection of wide receiver parts, and nothing was really standing out. And nothing was really taking off or materializing. And so that was a struggle. And that was why the Cowboys ultimately in an act of desperation traded for Amari. He really, really saved them. Not, not that injuries are ever a good thing, but that was the season. You know, the Cowboys, the, they lost to Washington on October 21st of that year. Then the very next day, they traded for Amari Cooper. And a few weeks later, Alex Smith at the time was injured. And that was the the terrible injury that he suffered. And that really has, has you know, put Washington in the place that they're, they're at still looking for a quarterback. And But at the time, you know, Washington was leading the division. It really looked like Alex Smith was going to lead them to a division title. And I don't know, you know, the, the Cowboys lost their first game with Amari. They, they were three and five after a Monday night loss to Tennessee. Actually, Jason Witten called that game on Monday night football. And then they ripped off five wins in a row. And that really validated who Amari was in the trade and really catapulted Dak Prescott into this different level of quarterback then because his rookie year was, was a very different season. The 2017 season for the Cowboys was really kind of plagued by the will Zeke be suspended, won't he be suspended energy that surrounded them every single week. So 2018 was kind of this first opportunity to really see Dak. And so Amari, you know, opened the door for him being an elite quarterback. We certainly saw that really take off Dak specifically had a lot of progression in 2019. Uh, Michael Gallup is a huge part of that. And so I think there's a lot of hope and belief that that, that can happen. But there's no question that that Amari's absence will will create a lot more pressure and a lot more coverage that other players have to fight through that they haven't had to before. And that's where somebody like CeeDee Lamb has to step up and, and really kind of be the new answer. But, uh, you, you know, the hope and belief is that you pay Dak Prescott as much as you do for him to be the answer, for him to be the difference and not for somebody else like Amari Cooper. Has there been any updates on the Ezekiel Elliott front? Because I know he had a slight dip in production two years ago, a little bit bounce back this year. Obviously, he still has the huge contract and, you know, they've valued Amari Cooper in that situation. So is there anything new there or is he still central to the long term plan of the Cowboys? I mean, I, 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 you know, if you ask the Cowboys, they, you know, they'll die on the Zeke Hill. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, uh, in the lead up to the NFL Combine, Stephen Jones was asked about Amari Cooper and Demarcus Lawrence. And obviously, we've seen two different things happen to them so far. Amari's gone. Demarcus gets a new deal with the team. And, and the answer to that was, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're, we're looking at all parts of our roster, et cetera, et cetera. Very company line. Uh, but then he's asked about Zeke Elliott, and it's, he's a warrior. We love Zeke. He, he, what a guy. Plays through injury. You know, his money's guaranteed. We, we're Obviously, we can't touch him. He's going to be around. And that's – I think every Cowboys fan is incredibly grateful to Zeke for, for what he's done and what he's meant to the Cowboys. It's been a really fun little era. But the evidence is just overwhelming that, that he's not the player he used to be, that, that Tony Pollard is a special player, uh, that Zeke is incredibly overpaid. And good for Zeke. I mean, good, good for Zeke winning those negotiations against the Cowboys. And, and that's a really frustrating thing. And so it's 
the Cowboys tend to kind of tell people it's raining, you know, when they're peeing down their leg when it comes to Zeke. And, and that really bothers people. But but that's the bed they've made. And, and they want to make it. They want to line it. They're very proud to make it and to line it. They were very proud of the fact that Zeke played injured basically the entire season. Zeke said as soon as the, the season ended against the 49ers that he played, you know, through a partially torn PCL. It was revealed that that happened way early in the year when they played the Carolina Panthers. And so, you know, there's an argument to be made, a very good argument, that, that a healthy Zeke is not the best runner on your team. So I don't know why you're prioritizing an injured Zeke Elliott, but the Cowboys remain convinced that that is the best way to win in today's NFL, which is a, a premise that a lot of data and substance and evidence overwhelmingly disagrees with. Um, and that's just, um, that, that in a nutshell kind of explains who they are in today's moment. Well, we're talking about the long-term plan for the Dallas Cowboys. It's important to note that Kellen Moore is still the offensive coordinator of this team. Mike McCarthy seemingly is going to be on the hot seat coming into this year. What, if anything, can Mike McCarthy do to save his job? Is that simply put, win a Super Bowl title, or is there like a lower bar that he can hit? You know, to be frank, I, I feel really terrible for Mike McCarthy. And it's been a really awkward offseason for him, really. I mean, from, from the very beginning, just about, you know, Jerry Jones does a lot of radio hits uh, throughout the week. He does two radio hits every single week during the season. And in his, his season-ending one on, on the home of the Cowboys, 105.3 The Fan, um, he was coy about Mike McCarthy's job status. He, he was asked, he was given multiple opportunities in that, that first interview to, you know, confirm that Mike McCarthy was returning for 2022 he didn't he acted all you know pissed off he huffed and he puffed and, and he blew down the the house of straw and the house of twigs uh you know just like the big bad wolf and the next week was filled with all the the coaching rumors and different coaches getting new jobs and, and, and filling different vacancies and things like that and, and obviously dan quinn was a head coaching candidate and he did not get the denver broncos or the chicago bears jobs those were the two that he was really heavily linked to the most and in in the aftermath of that it was you know as soon as those jobs were filled as soon as matt Eberflus, a former cowboy staffer got the bears job and, you know, Nathaniel Hackett got the, the Broncos job. It was announced that Dan Quinn was returning to the Cowboys to be their defensive coordinator. And Jerry did a, a surprise call-in, you know, session on the same radio station, which he's known to do, uh, and bragged about keeping Dan Quinn around. And he actually said that it was his strategy to purposefully not confirm that Mike McCarthy was coming back to... I guess in his mind, uh, entertain for, for Dan Quinn to entertain the idea of potentially somehow inheriting the Cowboys head coaching job. And so there was a lot of undermining that Jerry Jones did. And that's just what he did. The Cowboys have, have had a sort of a secret but not so secret love affair with Sean Payton for a very long time. And so his retirement threw another wrench into this, you know, whole complicated storyline. And that's not Jerry's fault or the Cowboys' fault. But again, they've they've kind of, you know, had eyes for Sean Payton for a very long time. And then, you know, I'm sure you've discussed Mike McCarthy went on the Rich Eisen show and and very, very firmly, you know, had some thoughts on on what Jerry had, had to say on Dan Quinn and everything like that. Yeah, I mentioned the NFL Combine the first day when McCarthy spoke. He did not have any Cowboys gear on. And so people read into that. I thought that was kind of silly. It's just been a very, very, very awkward offseason for him. It, it really does feel like a lame duck sort of thing. Trading away Amari Cooper doesn't help his cause, obviously. And so it does feel like, hey, you've got to win the Super Bowl or we're going to get rid of you. And, and I'm not a Mike McCarthy guy. I've gone to bat for him a lot. And I've really, you know... As, as new information has come out, this last season kind of unflayed itself. Um, you know, I, I adjusted my stance a little bit personally, but I do feel for him because I don't know how who you can expect anybody in this situation to thrive or to flourish. And so 
it does feel like they're setting him up to be the fall guy, which is really unfortunate. What do you think is the next move for the Cowboys? Because we mentioned they have the seventh most cap space and not a whole lot of people other than Chandler Jones, maybe to throw that money at. And obviously the draft is coming up. They don't have a huge pick in the draft. They could obviously make some sort of trade. So what is the next move for Dallas? They're, they still have some players that they want to retain. J. Ron Curse was a, a safety they signed last year, kind of a journeyman at the time, played really well for them. So that's something that they're working on. We'll, we'll totally see if, if that works out. Obviously, they missed out on Randy Gregory. They would like to get a long-term deal done with Dalton Schultz, who they placed the franchise tag on. That would also create some more salary cap space this season uh, if it wound up happening. Um, they've already lost out on Cedric Wilson, who was uh, another potential guy to bring back. But, you know, they're going to, you know, they have needs that their most glaring needs now are at wide receiver and, and you know, at guard and, and maybe tackle if you don't believe in Terrence Steele, who's entering his third season with the team. They need help at linebacker need, you know, especially if they're going to move Micah Parsons around. Maybe they bring Leighton Vanderish back on, on a one year sort of prove it deal or something like that. Um, and so they generally tend to find the, their, their positions of need. They, they generally tend to, to sign these lower level free agents. At this point in time, the second, the third wave, so they don't enter the draft with this absolute must fill hole where if they don't get anybody at that position in the draft and they're just kind of dead men walking. Um, so I think that's what's next. It's just kind of filling in the holes, um, so to speak. Like, you know, when you move out of an apartment and you take off all the stuff that's hanging and you go put like the toothpaste in the hole so you get your security deposit back. Like that's that's kind of what like they're about to do uh, in free agency. And so will they take a big swing at a Chandler Jones? You know, history would say no. They they haven't. There, I think there's this perception nationally that oh, Jerry will sign anybody. Jerry will do anything. They they are incredibly frugal in free agency. They do not like to sign the big name. Their last you know quote unquote big name signing was ten years ago. It was 2012. They signed Brandon Carr coming off his his time with the Kansas City Chiefs. He played you know moderately well for them, but he didn't have a thousand interceptions, and so he was regarded as a failure. Maybe they the the hottest name right now is Von Miller. Uh, NFL Network Exchange Slater reported that that he has interest in the Cowboys, but um, you know the price has to be right, and, and the price has to be right for Vaughn too. And and generally speaking, the Cowboys don't like the price that players like. And so I don't know. I mean, they they have a need there. They're very clearly willing to spend money at, at edge rush for opposite of Demarcus Lawrence, as evidenced by the fact that they were going to give it to Randy Gregory. Um, so does it work out with Vaughn Miller or Chandler Jones or Zadarius Smith? I don't know. It, it would stand to reason that they would walk away with somebody there. Maybe they might just sign Dor- or re-sign Dorrance Armstrong, but I think that's one of their more pressing needs right now along with Jaron Curse. All right. RJ Ochoa, SB Nation, logging the boys. Thank you for coming on, joining us today, man. Anything else you're working on? Any other projects? Any other plugs? No, we're just... Um... Not sleeping much right now. I mean, obviously, free agency is a, is a busy time of year. And uh, again, not that the Cowboys are, are doing anything notable, but their players are leaving. And so we're, we've, we've got trackers and, and updates and things we're doing, um, getting ready for our draft coverage. Um, you know, I think a lot of people also think this time of year slows down. In some ways, this time of year is busier than the season. You know, the season is you can you can kind of find a rhythm and, and things get a little bit more regular. But, um, you know, so we're staying on our toes and, and getting ready for the draft. And then we'll, we'll figure out who the Cowboys like, who they picked and, and how they're going to help this team. And, um, you know, the cycle moves on and on like it always has. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. Ninety-nine days. That's what it took to achieve labor peace and a new collective bargaining agreement in Major League Baseball. After all the blustering, all of the virtue signaling, it's over. Best part, we aren't even going to miss games, which makes the past several months of talk seem, in hindsight, really 
useless, really silly. We have an expanded playoffs. We have new rules that Kyle and I discussed last week. Owners have more money in their pockets with new playoff systems, ability to sponsor jerseys, and the clearing of a $500 million grievance from the 2020 season. Players have more money in their pockets with increases to the competitive balance tax, minimum salaries, in addition to the pre-arbitration pool. Overall, Kyle, do you think this was a deal both sides can be happy with? Yes. Um, I haven't dove into all of the nuances about who compromised what in the situation, but the fact that they came to a compromise in the first place was something that I, as the ultimate cynic, did not exactly uh, think was going to happen. I was talking about, you know, how long would it take to break the union? And it would be sometime between a month and sometime between a year. And then ultimately they came to a compromise. I was like, oh, didn't think that was going to happen. They started talking about international drafts and an extra luxury tax threshold, aka the steam. Steve Cohen tax. I just haven't read into what actually got implemented and what haven't. So I'm not sure who wins and who doesn't in the deal. But if both came to a compromise, it means it was a deal that possibly both sides were happy with. Although I will say that of the 38 union reps for Major League Baseball's Players Association, 30 players, one from each team, and eight lawyer representatives, all eight lawyer representatives voted to decline the new CBA, and 26 of the 30 player reps decided to accept the CBA. So it seems like maybe there was a disagreement within the players' union, but ultimately the players decided that this was a fair enough deal that they wanted to end up playing the full season, get full compensation, and get full service time going forward, even though it was probably likely that even if they canceled games, the players were going to get full service time for the season altogether. They ended up coming to a compromise in the end and baseball moves on forward. Full service time, but there is a chance that they may have missed out on parts of their salary. Depending on how many games they missed, the owners could said, I'm not going to pay you for 162 games when you only played 140, 120, or again, going back to the grievance that was dismissed in 2020, 60 games. We mentioned the international draft as it came to the final hours being a point that the owners wanted. Another one was the uh, $500 million grievance. And based off a lot of reports I was reading going into it, the players didn't really have a great leg to stand on in regards to that. I don't know if you remember the 2020 season. It wasn't just owners that were given a hard time about playing the full allotment of games. Players also didn't seem too jazzed to go out there and play during the COVID year as well. So it seemed like the 60 games actually became somewhat of a mutual decision that season. So the grievance itself, Easy to throw out some things I like because I, I did look at some cool things from this new CBA agreement for fans. So let's say you have a favorite interleague rival that you don't get to see your team play that often. So now moving forward, every team is going to play every team at least once a season, meaning that division games are going to be shrunken from 19 games a year to 14 games a year. I, I like this new construct of the um, pre-arbitration pool, or at least how it's designed. It definitely does incentivize players to ball out their rookie years. Uh, for example, if you were to win the MVP or the Cy Young in your rookie season, that would be a $2.5 million bonus. Second place finishers, 1.75. And third place finishers, 1.5. If you won the rookie of the year, that's a $750,000 bonus and $500,000 to the second place finisher. So being top two in your league, being the number one finisher in your league does have some potential money that could swing your way. Hey, if you're a fan, you can enjoy that too, because that means that your favorite player, yes, they're doing it for money, but they're also doing it to help your team and it works out for everyone. So it's a total win-win situation there. Uh, service time manipulation. So the top two players in rookie of the year get full years of service 
regardless of when they were called up. So they could be called up in July. And if they really made that much of a difference for your team and win rookie of the year, then guess what? They got their full year of service time. Also, you know, to combat the Chris Bryant rule, uh, teams that promote players to their opening day roster could get three draft picks if they receive rookie of the year votes or MVP votes. So we talked about, we want to see these guys sooner. We want to see these guys on opening day rosters, all these young guns from our team, all these prospects. Well, now teams have a reason to do that because if they have them on the opening day roster and they finish as MVP, if they finish as a rookie of the year, whatever the case may be, then they could get some benefits to their roster. And here's a big one, the draft lottery. Not as comprehensive as the NBA as it's only going to apply to the first six picks. But we do have a draft lottery, which means we're going to see less tanking teams. In addition to the expanded playoff, that means more teams are going to be vying to get into the playoffs. If for nothing else, at least they get some playoff revenue from making it to the dance. A lot of things to just improve the quality of baseball and those rule changes I should add in 2023, bigger bases, banning of the shift, pitch clock, 2023. So next season, no need to get used to them now. The only thing that's taking place now is going to be the universal DH. Out of those, I don't know which ones you're aware of, which what's what are you starting to like? So the one about the additional compensation for rookie of the year and finishing second or gold gloves or anything like that in the arbitration pool, I will say it's better than nothing. Like it probably should be more because $500,000 is still undervaluing someone who wins rookie of the year, but it is better than nothing for players there. When it comes to the service time manipulation rules, we saw that this is just creating incentives instead of getting rid of the entire service time system altogether, which there were enough issues going on in this collective bargaining. They didn't want to get rid of it altogether because there are benefits and there are some costs to the situation. So they just decided let's create incentives so that people are less willing to commit service time manipulation, which might work out, might not. I think it'll save some people, but like a star player, the caliber of Chris Bryant, maybe they still decide to manipulate service time because they value the one extra year of control more than the three draft picks or four draft picks or whatever they end up giving, which by the way, I actually like that that's the compromise that they came to is what if we just create incentives for owners and general managers to not commit service time manipulation? I think that that's a cool idea. The one that is really sticking in my head that I find really, really fascinating is the draft lottery because Major League Baseball really, really, really wants to do something about tanking. The NBA decided that a couple of years ago that they were going to change the odds in the draft lottery to make it so that teams at the top have a less chance of getting the number one pick, that the lottery becomes more random than it was in the past. I think it went from 25 14 and 10% for the top three picks to everyone getting 14% chances. Yeah, completely random unless Patrick Ewing is on the board. Well, see, this is the fun thing is that back then it was every team in the top seven has an equal chance of getting the number one pick. Now it's you still the worst teams have a better chance of getting the number one pick. But this is all just, again, a compromise and a negotiation. But the first year they implemented it, it led to Zion Williamson going to the Pelicans when in past years, the New York Knicks would have had a 25 percent chance of getting the number one pick. They got a 14 percent chance and they ended up missing out on Zion and John Morant because they only had a 42% chance of getting a top three pick when in the past it would have been 75%. Anyways, they really want to deal with tanking because in baseball,
baseball more than any other sport, tanking is really proven to be an effective strategy. Uh, football, it works if you can get a generational talent at the top of the draft. If not, then you become like the Giants or the Jaguars or the Jets or the Lions or the Panthers or and name any of the 10 teams that have been cycling through mediocrity for the past 15 really years. it's really hard to tank in football too, because the players, they know that they have the shortest career lifespan of any other athlete. So they have no incentive to tank. And we talked about guys like Adam Gase and the coaching staff. If you're a sitting duck, lame duck head coach, then there's no reason for you to tank because you know, you're not going to see the fruits of your labor. Whereas baseball, you mentioned they have a little bit more longevity, the managers themselves. I mean, the managers aren't as much on the hot seat as NBA coaches or NFL coaches. Yes. And in the NBA and in the NFL, one player can change the course of your franchise overnight. And in the MLB, that's not exactly the case because when you get players there in the minor leagues for so long and one singular player can't have the same impact as a franchise quarterback or a star NBA player that scores 30 points a game. I've said for years, I can't explain why Mike Trout doesn't single-handedly make the Angels at least close to the playoffs. I can explain it afterwards, but I don't understand why it's not the case. So in baseball, the path to success is to have lots of players enter their prime at the same time. And if you can get them on rookie contracts, it makes it all the more competitive advantage because if you're the Astros, you can trade for Justin Verlander or you can trade for Garrett Cole or you can go sign Michael Brantley and that will help build a team because you have the core of Springer, Correa and Bregman all on rookie contracts at the same time. So in baseball, there's more incentive to tank. And we're seeing right now that, you know, six teams is usually what you would think would be tanking. But right now, within a week of labor peace, we now have two more teams that are tanking in baseball. Oakland just traded their entire team. In fact, we have breaking news right now. I don't know if you want to add the fun little news drop. Breaking news. Matt Chapman just got traded to the Toronto Blue Jays within the last hour or so. And the Blue Jays are trying to go trade for Jose Ramirez from Cleveland, who also traded Francisco Lindor at this time last year in their teardown of their organization. So Cleveland tore their team down. Oakland just tore their team down. And Cincinnati just traded Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez, who were their two most productive hitters last year, in the same trade to the Seattle Mariners to save. $40 million over the next two seasons. So tanking is very much a real thing in baseball. And it's the thing that almost helped single-handedly gift the Atlanta Braves a championship last year was they lost Ronald Acuna and they just built an entire new offense at the trading deadline. They traded for Adam Duvall. They traded for Jorge Soler. I think they added four different bats. Jock Peterson, uh, they got from the Cubs. They added four different bats in the starting lineup for that playoff series. And baseball is a sport where you're incentivized If you have no chance of getting into the playoffs, you're better off going to the bottom instead of staying in the middle. And so baseball really did want to do something about tanking because it is bad for their business model if half of the league is actively not trying to win at the same time. But that's just the system that baseball is. It's something that every sport has if you're going to incentivize that the worst teams get the best picks. You're going to have tanking no matter what. It's just making that incentive less so for teams to tank. It's kind of amazing that it took 
took owners, it took general managers that long to figure out that game premium draft picks was something that they could benefit from, especially in game prospects. I did also want to mention too, with this pre-arbitration pool, if you didn't happen to win one of those top awards, there is a system, there is a sliding scale where the top 100 players in war also get a piece of this $50 million arbitration pool. It's not just people that are coming down with some hardware. If you are consistently helping your team, but maybe you didn't get an MVP vote, maybe you didn't get Cy Young votes or consideration, then you still can at least benefit from this. So again, both sides are making a little bit more money. I'm with you. Anytime you can get rid of tanking, it's a huge win for the sport. I'm tired of seeing these crappy teams. You know, I like you mentioned, whenever the Giants face the A's this year, am I going to be excited to watch that game? Or am I going to be like, okay, by the maybe a couple innings and then I could just tune out here? Probably the latter. I would go the other way on that. It's fun when you're a good team and everyone else is tanking. Like it's fun for the Padres and Giants when everyone else is tanking. It's just less fun when you root for a tanking team because the team is going to be bad, not just the next year, but for the next three to four years. True. But if I'm making that decision to go to the ballpark, then I want to also evaluate who do I get to see? Like I'm talking about this year, going to see a Niners game with my dad. We're talking about going to see the Buccaneers Niners game. And I'm more excited to go see that game now that I know on the opposing sideline is Tom Brady. Absolutely. So if I have to go to an A's game or A's Giants game and see any of the double A scrubs that they're pulling up, I'm not going to be as enthused to buy that ticket. Might it be a cheaper ticket, which might benefit my friend here, Kyle Ledbetter, who likes to spend $5 on Sacramento Kings games? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But I'm realizing myself, this is a me thing. I'm realizing that I'm just the one who doesn't care about tanking because I'm totally cool watching Christian Wood and the Detroit Pistons play against the shitty Sacramento Kings who chanted MVP for Rashawn Holmes. Less of a hit on his pocketbook. So that, that incentivizes him to go to more games. But um, I, I want to see good players, the best players, whenever I go to the game, whenever I go to a game at the ballpark. So I like to at least see the idea of a team trying. And who knows, maybe, maybe we misjudge on this because every now and then you'll come across a tanking team in baseball that suddenly is good <laughs> like watch. Seattle Mariners yeah Seattle no, Mariners did watch that next year as much as we're giving shit for the Oakland A's they're going to be one of those uh Miami Marlins from two years ago they're going to be the bottom feeder team that happens to make a run towards the playoffs because that's just sometimes what happens in baseball you can't explain it you can't rationalize it it just happens baseball is the most random sport that, that's one well, thing sometimes you also just true. miss your projections, right? Like the Marlins didn't expect to be that good. The Mariners didn't expect that they would be this good last year, especially if you told me that Kyle Lewis wasn't actually going to play oh, that well. Listen to the Giants. I mean, the Giants won 107 games last year. I was thinking of them more as I'm happy if they make it to the wild card. I feel like that's kind of the trajectory they're on. And then they go out and become the best team in the National League. It's hard to project. I mean, there's some really smart analytics people that are really going to be put through the ringer this season with the shifts going away, with uh, trying to evaluate DHs. Seeing how that works for the National League, I mean, we, we talked about it, but really seeing how it's going to work in signing DHs or seeing who's in your system to become your DH is going to be an interesting bit of strategy for National League teams, especially, like I said, if they're playing a lot more American League teams, the, the American League teams are going to have an obvious advantage because they plan for this ahead. They signed their DH. They knew who their DH was a year ago. I'm sure some National League teams were smart about it and also were thinking in the back of their mind, this might happen. 
So they might have signed a guy into their AAA system or someone that they thought, ah, defensively, he's a scrub. But offensively, this guy's a big thumper. I'm sure we're going to see a few of those guys come up this year. Uh, spring training, you know, pitchers and catchers report here in, I think, about a week. So we'll really see what's going on. We'll really see the scouting reports. Got to get some MLB power rankings soon. But I'm just happy it's over. I'm just happy we don't have to bitch at each other because it seems like the only time we talk baseball is when something universally bad is happening. Now that's or a once every 50 year cheating scandal. Exactly. Anytime some drama is happening, that's the only time we talk baseball. But no, we get to talk baseball when something good is happening. It's good. It's fun. It's happening. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Right at the MLB lockout, the MLB hot stove was sizzling, scorching. Now, post-lockout, it's back and started once again. This spring training will look a little bit different with free agency coinciding with it. Uh, Chris Bryant, seven-year, $182 million deal with the Rockies. Freddie Freeman, six-year, $162 million deal to sign with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Matt Olson is now brave, and Matt Chapman is now Blue Jay as part of the Oakland A's official rebuild. Also, Scott Boris' client, Carlos Correa, still remains remains unsigned but it's looking like he's on a trajectory to end up back in Houston. Kyle, what are your thoughts on some of the big name signings we've got this March? Well, this March is a great sign there because we had baseball free agency overlapping with NFL free agency. It was just chaos of transactions all over the place. It was quite wonderful. I thought Colorado was trying to tank. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> They're paying 150 million of Nolan Arenado's contract, and they're now paying Chris Bryant. I I don't understand that. And part not to of mention it. their complete failure to trade Trevor Story at the deadline last year. Yeah, they were half in, half out. I think maybe it was just they didn't want to pay the Arenado contract. Like they kind of saw the writing on the wall with that one. Chris Bryant, I think, is a couple of years younger than Arenado. Does this mean MLB anti-tanking is already working? <sighs> No, because now two more teams are added to the list of tanking teams. Obviously, Cincinnati dumped uh, Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez, like we talked about in the last segment. And Oakland is the perfect example of how tanking is well and alive in baseball, because Oakland just took a team that in 2017 won 98 games. In 2018, won 97 games. 2019, they won 97. In 2020, they were on pace to win over 90 games and won the American League West. Obviously, I enjoyed having Chris Bryan as part of the Giants, and I think he was a big part of us making a nice little run in postseason. So I would have liked the Giants to have him back, but when you hear a number like seven-year, $182 million, and you see the decline in production from Chris Bryant's MVP year, it was just not worth it to me. And that's a big problem with in general whenever you see these six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year deals in baseball. Freddie Freeman to the Dodgers, though, I'm only worried about the first two years because we already know how good the Dodgers are and they're adding him to the middle of their lineup and it just is ridiculous it's like every time the Padres are in on someone the Dodgers say you know let me just slide into these DMs because that's exactly what happened with Freddie Freeman in my mind 
Oh, and then it also happened with Mookie Betts. And also you know, Ken Rosenthal reported that we acquired Max Scherzer and then Max Scherzer and Trey Turner ended up on the Dodgers. You know, it's just, it's how this thing works, right? This is how all of this ends up making us look sad. Us being Padres fans and San Francisco Giants fans, of course. But the system is unfair. Baseball is designed to be unfair. Different teams have different amounts of income. They don't share revenue as a league. It is designed for the Dodgers to spend exorbitant amounts of money so that Freddie Freeman can make $30 million until he's 39 years old because Freddie Freeman didn't make any money on those first few years of his contract when he was playing for shitty tanking Atlanta Braves teams. And now he gets compensated by the Dodgers. Doesn't even matter if he's good or not. He doesn't even matter if he's a great player or not. They would prefer him to be a great player, but they can just slide Max Muncy over to first base if they need to. (laughs) So are we calling Freddie Freeman the new age Albert Pujols wins a World Series title with the team that he came up with and then dips to LA waste away in his 30s that's uh, that's such a uh that's such an insult to Albert Pujols because that man might be the greatest right-handed hitter of all time I feel like this we know how bad the Angels years were we know that those exist on Albert Pujols's resume as awesome of a player he is because I remember the Cardinals years too Yeah, Albert Pujols had the lowest offensive war in baseball in a single season and then still got four more years in Anaheim. That is a real stat that actually exists. Um, Compare this to Anthony Rendon. That's what I was thinking of. When Anthony Rendon won the World Series with the Nationals and then immediately dipped to Anaheim. Think of it like that. Anaheim fans have considered Rendon's tenure to not be super successful because the Angels didn't get any better after signing Anthony Rendon. But it's not Anthony Rendon's fault because Anthony Rendon finished third in war during the shortened 2020 season and was top 10 in war last season. So he's actually been really good for Anaheim. Freddie Freeman will still be a contributor for the Dodgers, even if he will never be able to meet the expectations of his contract. The Dodgers are obviously spending money, but similarly, we're seeing on the East Coast a lot of money being spent by Steve Cohen and the New York Mets. After the lockout, Steve Cohen immediately goes out there and acquires another guy, Chris Bassett, coming over from A's. Again, part of that teardown. This just coincides with their addition of Max Scherzer. So adding a rotation that now is DeGrom, Scherzer, and Chris Bassett. So it's all number three starter for them um, as they continue to try and get this thing going around. Uh, I know you had to talk about your boy, Fernando Tatis, getting in an injury the other day. Um, Pete Alonso also was involved in a major wreck not too long ago as well. So hopefully for the Mets, you know, as they try and make this team a legitimate World Series contender, he's healthy and back out there for them as well. But some big moves for them. The Yankees, obviously the bigger brother in New York, uh, added a couple new additions there as well, trading for former MVP Josh Donaldson. Uh, in that trade, they also get Isaiah Kiner Falefa and Ben Rortfit. Rortfit? <laughs> Uh, and the catcher. He's just they'll a catcher. be sending over uh, Gio Urshela as well as Gary Sanchez. Now, Gary Sanchez, uh, a couple years ago, we thought he was going to be the next great offensive catcher in baseball, and it just never really panned out for him. They've had a couple of guys like this. Uh, you know, to talk about Gary Sanchez, you know, looking like a 20-30 home run guy, and then Glaber Torres thought they were going to have their shortstop of the future, and that hasn't really panned out. Uh, so the Yankees are now going out there and trying to spend some money again, uh, reacquiring Anthony 
Rizzo. Uh, Rizzo didn't have a great year in New York last year after the acquisition from the Cubs. Uh, was okay, had his moments, had a couple big home runs for them. Uh, homered in his first game, as all the former Cubs did last year after getting traded at the deadline. But since then, it was pretty quiet. Similarly, Joey Gallo, another acquisition by them. So it'll be curious to see how Rizzo uh, maintains that first base. This means they're probably going to have other trades coming out as uh, Luke Voigt probably doesn't make sense anymore on their roster. Uh, what do you think of what the Yankees and Mets did? So the the Mets part is kind of interesting because similar to the Angels, I'm like, I assume the Mets are going to work out. I don't understand why it wouldn't work out, but the Mets will be kind of in a similar place as last year where they're like right there with the Atlanta Braves, I feel like, unless some of those players on the team make significant leaps. Uh, I think the Mets should be really, really good next year, assuming DeGrom is healthy, assuming Pete Alonso is okay because he, his car flipped over three times in a freakish accident. Scary, man. Um, you Scary. know, so assuming those pieces, I mean, assuming those pieces end up working out, they should be a fine team. The Yankees part is interesting because this is a masterclass of how do you live with the mistakes of past decisions? And you mentioned David Sampson and something he said last week that I've, I've known him for a little while mentioning it on the Levitard show, which is when you have lots of money, when you're a big market team in baseball, you can make mistakes and get away with it. I'll never forget that in 2018, when the Red Sox won that World Series with one of the best teams ever, they just straight cut Hanley Ramirez. Like, we're just going to cut $28 million. We're going to absorb it and just tell him to go home. And I think the Yankees are living with some of those mistakes right now. Gio Urshela, I love Gio Urshela because Gio Urshela was a backup third baseman for the formerly Cleveland Indians who was basically just cut, picked up on a minor league deal by the Yankees. They they did the money ball thing where they retooled his swing, kind of like the Dodgers did with Justin Turner and Max Muncy, where they signed them to minor league deals and then they turned into 35 home run guys. The Yankees did that with Urshela and then were able to take that minor league signing and then flip it into Josh Donaldson, who's still one of the best third basemen in all of baseball. Fun story with Josh Donaldson, though, and it's going to be interesting look in that locker room. Obviously, Donaldson was one of the biggest proponents against sticky stuff last year, even having a few confrontations with some Chicago White Sox players. So him being in the same locker room as Garrett Cole is definitely going to be a story to monitor <laughs> um, as Garrett Cole was the one that took the most lumps out of that whole situation. I think if there was a poster child for spider tack, it was Garrett Cole last year. So I wonder if Josh Donaldson and him have already made their amends. Yeah, I'm sure this will be something fascinating to follow there. By the way, you mentioned Glaber Torres not working out the way the Yankees had entirely hoped. I know he's been an all-star before, but if they want to have a backup plan, this is like they, they did the equivalent of like signing Teddy Bridgewater as your backup, which is trading for Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, which is he's a fine player. He's, yeah. He was a two hitter for the for the Texas Rangers last what, year. What Yankees personnel keeps saying is that they got defensively better, which was a big weakness for the Yankees. Yankees. Offensively, they may take a hit trading away a guy like Sanchez for a guy like a uh, vet, but they do get better <laughs> defensively. You know, they're going to do more of a platoon at catcher moving forward, which if you're a more fundamentally based baseball team, that's not a bad thing to be either. You know, um, it, it's nice to have the flashy stars, but sometimes it doesn't hurt to just go back to fundamentals from time to time. 
Kyle Higashioka should be their full-time starter now. And any chance I get to say Kyle Higashioka, I will take the chance to say it also uh, because it's one of the best names that exists in baseball right now. So the Giants were actually active too. Uh, we picked up Carlos Rodon early on this free agency. So that helps replace Kevin Gossman in the rotation, which I'm happy with because Alex Cobb, I didn't really think he was going to be a full replacement for him. I know they're both pitchers that rely on a great splitter, but they're not exactly one-to-one A comparisons. Again, losing Chris Bryant, that that is going to be a hole in their batting order that they're going to have to fill. But they did get Jock Peterson, which was a big addition for the Atlanta Braves on their World Series run, not to completely skate over it, but they did get Matt Olson. So that at least replaces Freddie Freeman in the lineup. The big part of that is losing Freddie Freeman's leadership, obviously, in Atlanta. He was a big part of, as you mentioned, a rebuild that eventually ended in this World Series, them being a perennial playoff team. Now they're one of the better run front offices in baseball. So Matt Olson, do you think he could just easily slide in to that spot to make the Braves once again, I guess, World Series contenders? Well, last year, I didn't think the Braves were anywhere close to World Series contenders because I didn't believe that a team that rebuilt their entire offense basically from scratch at the trade deadline could win a World Series. They get a Kuna back this year. He, uh, according to his swings at spring training, is back. Yes. Check out that video. Slump Buster YouTube. Make sure to subscribe. I think that the Braves are still the best team in the National League East because as much as losing Freddie Freeman sucks, it's not like the end of the world. Like I talked about with Tatis, no one player signifies the end of the world. Now, if you're the Giants and you lose Buster Posey and Chris Bryant and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt both had ridiculous career revival seasons that will probably come back down to earth or Evan Longoria looks like he's 27 again again when he's 35 probably not going to get the same yeah, he was a little hurt and he sucked in the postseason love you Evan but your end of the season run there was horrendous to watch I think he had like a one for 30 slump and obviously we we love busting the slump so hopefully you do it again here in 2022 because uh yeah we kind of need that uh it's not easy to repeat a 107 win season Last year, they were a surprise. There was a couple things that, you know, happened before this lockout, too, that we should do a little bit of callback to. So the Rangers were spending money going out there again Corey Seager uh, that's right I forgot yeah, about that Marcus Simeon so they they added some big bats so I kind of wonder how that's going to change that complexion of the AL West as the A's are getting worse the Angels are one of the big mysteries we talked about how Mike Trout doesn't really change the composition of them as a playoff team the Astros Again, we'll see what happens with Correa, right? You know, Correa is one of their big bats, but in general, the Astros are one of the best run organizations in baseball, you know, cheating the scandals aside. They do a good job of just constantly uh, bringing in guys that help them in one way or the other. You know, they do a great job in player evaluation. Not a guarantee that they're just going to walk away with that, especially because the Mariners are actually making an effort to really compete this year in that division. In the AL West, how do you see that one shaking up? So Texas will be better than Oakland. They will be better than no one else in that division. Uh, Houston will win the division because Houston will always win that division. Uh, Houston, you mentioned like one of the best run organizations in baseball. Houston has had the greatest run of success in baseball since the 1990s. What is it? Five ALCSs in a row? Five ALCSs in a row, three World Series appearances, one World Series championship. And the Houston Astros, that is in baseball qualifies as the, you know, non-Giants category, greatest run of success. Yeah. You would have the liked 90s to see Yankees. one more World Series in there, just given the fact that they were the favorites in both the Nationals and Braves series. Yeah, I mean, the Nationals won. They were the 
the uh, I believe it was the seventh greatest offense in the history of Major League Baseball. Like they were battling like 1940s Yankees teams in terms of most efficient offense in the history of baseball and had three amazing starters. It's just, you know, luck, chance, whatever you want to call it, that they lost to, to the Nationals because baseball's random. I would also say some postseason slumps to cost them against the Braves. I mean, Carlos Correa, as great as we talk about him, he was bad in that series. Uh, Altuve mm-hmm. kind of had too. a down series. Bregman had an awful series. Uh, the Braves were right place, right time. Their rotation, we talked about it too. The, the Braves rotation was probably the best rotation that the Astros had faced going into that World Series. And ultimately it did prove to be their demise. And their makeshift offense was way better than I thought. Like Jock Peterson was a huge contributor in the CS. Eddie Rosario, uh, Jorge Soler won World Series MVP. Like it didn't make any sense there. The team that I found funny, and now it's just laughable at this point, is the Angels. Because you mentioned Mike Trout and how like Mike Trout was never enough to get the Angels over the hump because they were a poorly run franchise who never developed talent, never had enough starting pitching, never had enough young people, and every now and then would give out a bad contract. They have the next generation's generational talent on their team also, and they still can't make the playoffs. Like now they just go right from Mike Trout to Shohei Otani, and they still can't make it to the playoffs. It's the most ridiculous thing that has ever existed in baseball, that now it's not just one generational star, it's two goddamn generations in a row, and they still can't get close to the playoffs, even though I do think they have a chance to make the playoffs because not every American League East team can make it to the playoffs this year, even if you expand it to 12 teams. Although you can make a case for all of them. I mean, the Red Sox will probably be good. The Yankees will probably be good. The Rays will probably be good. The Blue Jays are looking like they'll be good. And then there's the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, Orioles. Fun fun time to be the Baltimore Orioles, which if the Tigers didn't exist, would be the worst run franchise in all of professional baseball over the last 10 years. Okay, over the last 10 years. I was going to say because uh, they, they were pretty good at the start of the 2010s. They were pretty yes, good then. So they, um, Walter years. And then uh, they offered Chris Davis that ridiculous contract that is haunting them to this day. No, I disagree. It was the uh, decision to leave Ubaldo Jimenez in a wild card game instead of going to Zach Britton and Edwin Encarnacion launching a 450 foot walk off homer for the Blue Jays. And the franchise has just never recovered since. I think that was like 2015 or 2016, but they've just never recovered since they left Jimenez in instead of going to Zach Britton. I tell you, Ubaldo Jimenez, that is a name of a player that fell from grace so hard. We were talking about about a guy that could have won the Cy Young and then just tanked the rest. He did of it in career. Colorado too. Like that was the weirdest part is he did it in Colorado. I remember, uh, God, I have so many weird Ubaldo Jimenez memories, but he was playing was- the Padres and he was starting the game he got traded on. He got traded mid game against the Padres. They pulled him out in like the third inning and he got traded from the Rockies mid game. <laughs> well, given the, some of these teams they're rebuilding, bringing up double A guys, who knows? Ubaldo Jimenez might end up on the A's or Pirates by the end of the season. <laughs> yeah, or maybe he'll good. end up pitching for the Yankees deep into the playoffs because, uh, as, as I've been saying for many, many years, the Yankees have just been desperately trying to find a third starter for five years. And really, it's more 20 years, but it's always they have two good pitchers. They can never get a third one. Sometimes it's Tanaka. Sometimes it's Sabathia. Sometimes it's James Paxton. Sometimes it's Jamison Tayon. Sometimes it's Corey Kluber. Sometimes it's Luis Severino. They just can never 
ever find a third starter. And every year at the trade deadline, the Yankees always need to trade for a third starting pitcher. None of them ever work out for some reason for the Yankees. You learned with us. You laughed with us. us. Now it's time to do some deep thinking. Hashtag bust the slump with your weekly words of wisdom. For this week's words of wisdom, I was thinking about something that Marquise Goodwin once put out. If you had $86,400 in your bank account and someone stole $10 from you, would you get upset and throw the remaining amount of $86,390 away? The answer is obviously no, you wouldn't. You have 86,400 seconds each day. Don't let a negative 10 seconds ruin the entire day. And I think that's very powerful. I was thinking about an incident this week where Naomi Osaka, she was at a tennis tournament. Naomi Osaka is a very famous tennis player. And someone yelled down from the crowd, Naomi, you suck. And Naomi, of course, she broke down in tears. And I can understand why that'd be a hurtful comment. But at the same time, Naomi, that one detractor, that one person who's yelling down at you, that shouldn't ruin your entire day because there is hundreds, thousands more people there in your corner. That was 10 seconds of your day. But the remaining amount of your day. You're Naomi Osaka. You're one of the best tennis players in the world. You're on a trajectory to be one of the GOATs. Don't let that 10 seconds ruin your entire day, week, month, ruin your entire career. There's people that are like saying, could Naomi Osaka retire after this latest incident, this latest breakdown? No, it's not worth it because there's been studies on it that show that for every negative comment, you need 10 compliments to outweigh it. Why is it that way? Simple math, scoreboard. The good outweighs the bad. Focus on the good. If you've just focused on the good in your day, then the bad should not outweigh it. Again, you have 86,400 seconds in your day. Very powerful words from Marquise Goodwin. That's going to do it for us, Slump Busters. Go ahead and check us out at Slump Buster Podcast on IG, at Slump Buster Pod on Twitter. If you're watching this on Apple iTunes, go ahead and leave a five-star review. If you're listening to us on YouTube, go ahead and leave a like on this video. Comment below some thoughts on the show, things we can get better at. Always looking for constructive criticism. Don't give me a negative 10 seconds now. Uh, from Juju Talk Sports, from Kyle Better, stay safe, happy, and healthy, and we will see you on the next one.